Hello, you're listening to Future Artifacts FM, a radio show hosted by Neve Schmidtke and Nina Davies. Earlier this year, several radio frequencies were discovered airing a collection of broadcasts. At first, they sounded like regular news stories and interviews. They felt familiar, but also not quite belonging to our present. Slowly, the listeners came to believe that what they were listening to did indeed belong to their world, just not their time. They were looking into the future through the mundane edges of radio recordings and public service announcements. While this material is still being meticulously studied by researchers in various universities and museums, your hosts have managed to gain access to this collection to air a selection of these broadcasts for you, our listeners. For full disclosure, we will not be sharing this collection with you, as this introduction is based on a fictional event. In this monthly broadcast, Future Artifacts FM, we will present speculative fiction pieces by artists and writers, followed by conversation with hosts Neve Schmidtke and Nina Davies. The program will focus on fictional works intended for broadcast, such as radio plays or fictional interviews, to carve out a better understanding of the now by exploring various interpretations of the future. Welcome back to our fourth episode of Future Artifacts. Today we're joined by artist M.H. Sarkis, who will be sharing her work Endoplexed, which is a 16-minute audio work. Yeah, we're really excited to have M.H. Sarkis on the show. It's really great to have another guest. So a little bit of background. Uh, Through a blend of various mediums, including textiles, CGI, film, responsive robotics, and machine learning, M.H. Sarkis' work explores relational dynamics female experience, and soft power within the frameworks of potential posthumanisms and techno-protopias. Sarkis is a recent Goldsmiths MFA graduate and winner of the 2021 Alma Cantor Award and currently showing in the London Grads Now show at the Saatchi Gallery. Very welcome on the show. Thank you, Neve. Thanks, Nina, for having me. Oh, we're really excited to have you. Yeah, I mean, one quick question we wanted to ask before we listen to the work what do you consider a protopia to be, or a techno-protopia? It implies an environment that is neither utopian nor dystopian and reflects a situation that is perhaps somewhat better than what preceded it, but not significantly better, if that makes sense, nor significantly worse. This is actually a new term for us. When you sent it over, we were both like, what does that mean? We gave it a quick Google. And it's interesting because we kind of, without knowing what the term meant, we've been talking about that a bit on the show in previous episodes. Yeah, because there is that, I mean, a utopian dystopia, they're kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. I think one thing kind of we've been talking about is like this mundaneness of the future and it not having to be kind of this very splashy thing of everything is horrible or everything is amazing. It's like, well, what's happening in between? Which a prototopia um describes perfectly um yeah is there anything else you'd like us to know about the work before we listen to it well i like to call it a soundscape i think it's a quite jazzy term and uh it doesn't really imply that it's necessarily musical nor narrative it just sort of creates a atmosphere that i like to think envelops the viewer, uh, the listener. We really recommend listening to M.H. Sargas's piece through headphones or earphones. 
as mm. there are quite a lot of the the clips within the piece are kind of surrounding and moving from one ear to another and that really helps kind of envelop you in this sensory um sensory experience okay so we'll listen to your to your work and be back in about 16 minutes enjoy Great. spider that lived in a bush outside your window orange body green legs watched her build a web all summer and one day there's a big egg in it the egg hatched the egg hatched yeah and a hundred baby spiders came out and they ate her
recovery button, which makes it more sensitive and you can see flow much better. Sometimes you're gonna push the invert button.
welcome back. I hope you all enjoyed the beautiful sounds of M.H. Sarkis's work. To start off this conversation, I was wondering if you could give us a brief description about where this work has come from for you. Before we delve into some of your references, it might be nice for our listeners to understand your position as the artist in relation to this work. Sure. So in making this work, I instinctively wanted to piece together something that was cinematic and, in a sense, immersive enough to help viewers get lost in the piece. And in starting the work, I was reviewing some clips from the 1982 Blade Runner film, and that's that film has always been a big inspiration for me. And something that really struck me was a snippet, a dialogue snippet from the film where Rachel is speaking with Deckard about her memories and one of them entails a spider hatching, well, a spider laying an egg and that egg hatching open. You remember the spider that lived in a bush outside your window? Orange body, green legs. Watched her build a web all summer. Then one day there's a big egg in it. The egg hatched. The egg hatched? Yeah. And a hundred baby spiders came out. And they ate her. And there were hundreds of little babies that ended up eating the mother. And I thought that was quite a surreal idea because it's not only touching on the fear of that maybe comes along with with motherhood but also something that supposedly Rachel is not able to do herself which is give birth and also something that she doesn't necessarily have autonomy over which is these memories implants those aren't your memories they're somebody else's they're Tyrell's nieces and these, uh, just for people who aren't very aware, these memories are supposedly implanted into her, so they're they're not organic per se. Mm-hmm. To simulate the memories. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I I wanted to talk to you about what I felt was the unease in the work, which when you start off with that quote of the process of giving birth or of laying eggs is also the process of being consumed, because mm-hmm. the spider kind of all of these baby spiders come out, but they come out from within her. So in the process of giving life, she loses life. And what I found quite interesting as I was listening through the piece was that the work collages several audio clips together. In a way, the audio, it feels quite dystopic to me. I know we talked about prototopias, but it feels very dark and it's fragments of a future that we're about to inherit. I'm Mm. wondering, was this process deliberate to create unease for the listener? You know what's funny is that I don't deliberately go into it thinking I want to create something that makes people feel ill at ease. I, all I really want is to immerse a listener in so that they, in a way, forget what is waiting outside for them externally. So I don't know if that answers your, your question. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't intentional, but I guess it's part and parcel of some of the themes that are being explored in the piece so um, fertility and speaking of which I know I mentioned that 
Rachel supposedly can't give birth. But at that stage in, in the story, we don't actually know for sure. So there is this, you know, a set of unknowns that are still being dealt with in, in the narrative, even a near future, per se. That's not to say that I think the near future is dystopic, as we're saying. It's, it's I mean, judging by the way things have gone in the last century, that's, it's more akin to, as we were saying, a, a protopia, you know, I guess human history has shown that we have progressed and made slight, at least slight improvements in what we were previously subjected to as on a, on a whole. So I don't think it would necessarily be fair to say that we have a dystopia coming up, but something that is perhaps different to what we're used to or what we know, and that unknown can be quite scary in some ways. Mm -hmm. So the process of it being unknown is what makes it perhaps feel dystopic, even yeah. when it's not actually. Yes. Do you see something like something like IVF, which we'll probably come back to later unless we cover it all now, do you see that as a sort of dystopia or protopia? I'm really interested to know what your thoughts on IVF as a sort of future. I think it's it holds a lot of positive possibilities just because it extends your, your window as a woman and um, you're no longer bound by your, your body clock necessarily. Um, however, when that then leads on to other kinds of reproductive technologies, I think that's where I feel there should be some caution, well, a lot of caution exercised just because of the huge potential for commodification and abuse of these kinds of uh, technologies. Skipping ahead a bit, I was wondering if this is sort of a critique of contemporary IVF practices, because kind of you sent us on a few references beforehand, um, kind of specifically about kind of the distinction of how IVF clinics will kind of create consent forms for women to know, should your eggs that you are donating not or giving not be formed into embryos, what happens? And part of that is they might go into stem cell research, which is kind of highly controversial. Mm -hmm. In reading that research in conjunction with listening to this work, it just, yeah, I was wondering, do you feel like the work is kind of acting to kind of open out that kind of possible future? Or do you feel it's a critique of kind of contemporary or present practices in IVF? Perhaps it's, I'm inclined to say that it's both really. Um, I do think that when it comes to women being informed about what is going to happen with their eggs, I think that there needs to be obviously full, full disclosure. And that's the, that, that would be, I would say, the difference between organ donation and egg donation. There's been obviously so much more research when it comes to organ donation and it comes from a much more altruistic standpoint in a way mm -hmm. um, and you also don't get paid for donating an organ however the whole term itself egg donation although it's called donation women who donate their eggs quote-unquote donate their eggs uh, are actually getting paid for that and that calls into question a whole other host of, of problems 
the commodification of the female body or the female reproductive system. Exactly. And I do think that bottom line is women always need to be at the center point of any sorts of reproductive discussions, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, when Neve and I were talking earlier um, about your work, briefly talking about how it's really interesting that the word infertile or fertility is is always linked to to the feminine mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. what I can't remember what why we started talking I mean obviously we were talking about it because of your work but I think we were talking about a movie weren't we yeah yeah so I don't know if you've seen the film uh, Children of Men it's a 2006 science fiction film and the idea behind the film is that 18 years ago babies stopped being born and we are kind of, yeah, I guess in preparation for today, I was just watching kind of a snippet of it. And part of it was talking about, you know, oh, why do you think women have become infertile? Mm-hmm. As opposed to kind of, I guess, maybe a more contemporary understanding that, you know, it's it's your partner as well. But oftentimes there is the sense of it being the fault of, of the woman. I mean, most recently, um, kind of the TV series Sex Edu- Education had their most recent season and in it, one of the characters, she's going through fertility treatment. But you can see as the show progresses that she feels that weight, that it is her fault mm-hmm. um, and that her partner does not want it. And it's put the responsibility, it seems to be put entirely on her as opposed to it being a relationship. Yeah. Um, Definitely. Yeah. That harks back to the historic connection that has been placed on women when it comes to um, fertility you know if a woman didn't produce a male hair hair, hair yeah. mm. it was pinned as the, the woman's fault basically so while that as I say that's an onus it's also I think in a way something that's that's unique to host basically another life form inside your own body mm-hmm. and I think that is well, has potential maybe to be appropriated through a continued, perhaps, patriarchal nature of biomedical systems, in a way. Well, talking about fertility being, you know, historically, like, the idea of fertility or infertility being connected to the female, and also, I guess, questioning the female or what the feminine is in future of, of the word infertility or fertility and I guess like that's something like IVF is challenging like I guess the role of, of the woman within these systems mm-hmm. the woman is now something that's commodified, is she relevant I guess that's sort of something that uh, in Blade Runner like kind of comes up as well like what's the role of the woman in society in this dystopic future vision yeah so i see yeah i see that as a a source of power in a way Mm. for women to have this innate system if that makes sense but also a responsibility that isn't always very welcome if that makes sense yeah because it simultaneously is like this this responsibility of kind of caring for and maintaining life but then also there's this massive range of 
women or um, feminine presenting people who don't want to ever carry a child. And then the kind of responsibility, I guess, of not carrying a child is then theirs, Mm -hmm. or it's kind of seen as singularly theirs. So kind of if a woman is in a relationship with a man or just not in a, if they're in a relationship where, you know, two different sex organs, it's almost in, it's all, it's typically the woman's responsibility or the or the female presenting person's yeah. responsibility to stop reproduction from happening. Um, but I think having that option in itself can be very powerful. Having mm-hmm. being able to exercise the option of either carrying or deciding not to carry this mm. other, you know, an offspring. I think that in and of itself is. As I say, for want of a better word, it is it is powerful. It is significant. It's um... you're not sort of bound to these sort of like rules of society that if you are the one that has given birth to the child, it means that you're the one that has to take time off work, and you're the mm-hmm. one that. I mean, I'm sort of thinking about. Uh, I remember I had a conversation with some people who ran a company in Finland somewhere, and we were talking about it. Don't know how we got on to talking about it, but they were talking about how they wouldn't hire a woman who was like 30 or over i mean they would if she was the best person for the job but if she was next to a man of the same age with the same uh responsibilities as they would hire him because she's a risk because she might need to she might need to take maternity leave which they might not be able to really afford to do which i find hilarious in finland because i'm pretty sure that there's equal paternal to maternal care oh is there in finland at least in in a lot of Scandinavian countries, I know in Sweden, you get you get basically parental leave, and you split it between the partners. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cause I, yeah, I have these like words just sort of like the, from this conversation ringing in my head, which you know I probably had like seven yeah. years ago, and now that I'm now that I am thirty, I can't believe I'm saying this on the radio <laughs> show. Like I'm definitely thinking about it a lot more now. Like without having a secure job, I d- I do think about like would someone want to hire me if if there was a a man who was just as you know just as worthy of the job as I was mm-hmm. that's definitely a huge disadvantage that comes with being a woman I guess but at the same time I find these two extremes really really interesting and when I say extremes I mean the huge benefit to being able to create life and the huge downside to having that ability as well which is for example, the discrimination that you've just brought up. Mm. And I, I, I think these sorts of concepts carry a lot of weight because of these two very different... I guess it kind of feels like the ability to carry a child is seen almost as a burden in contemporary society, or at least the ability that... or how it's going to conflict with a working life. Mm. They don't really compute because the idea of taking time off or taking time out or focusing on a form of care and a form of work that is typically unpaid is not seen as positive Mm -hmm. often. Um, I think there can be a case, at least when when you're younger and you're maybe not thinking about having children or you haven't had a child, a lot of it is, oh, you're going to give up this and you're going to give up that. But often when you speak with new parents, they're like, I've gained so much. And that side isn't the side that is focused on so much when you're beforehand. Yeah. And I really wonder 
how things are going to develop now that the pandemic and, and lockdown has radically changed the way that we work. We have a lot more people working from home than ever before, and I think that would definitely open up a lot more doors when it comes to childcare. Or parenthood, and parent, even. Parenthood, yeah. that's mm-hmm. it, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was sort of wondering whether during during lockdown, whether there was going to be another... I mean, I think I'm not the only one who saw this. I think this is the thing, but whether there's going to be another baby boom because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. everyone's kind of at home, got nothing to do. May as well have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I guess I've also heard a lot of stories of young parents where because you are at home, there's almost a return back to more patriarchal or kind of like a 1950s housewife kind of mentality okay. um, where now that you're both working from home and you're there all the time it's like oh well a workplace is now seen as a more equal place because you're outside of a home whether it's a home or a domestic space still seems to fall under a lot more or at least in like from my perspective growing up in like Ireland it's still much more of um, a gender-rolled space. It's more expected for women to do cooking and cleaning. It's more expected for them to do child work. And that's not to say that, you know, if there's a male partner in that relationship, that they won't also pick up some of that weight, but they'll almost never pick up an equal amount or more. And so it's actually been really hard. Uh, I was reading an article released in the Irish Times about artists and the impact of them working from home. And drastically, for a lot of artists who are mothers, they found that they lost about 80% of the time they would have spent working on art practice through childcare. Yeah, I think the arts itself is, as a whole, very unforgiving. And given its dog-eat-dog nature, there's, it's not super surprising why one of the most disadvantaged or negatively affected groups would be mothers in that sense. So I just want to bring it up, and I know it's not like directly what your work is about, but I just wanted uh, to ask, the work seems to be referencing 80s sci-fi aesthetics or sort of sound aesthetics, I guess. And I'm wondering if and why this era is of interest to you and how you see it in relation to our current conceptions of the future. Do you think there is any sort of credibility to an 80s vision of the future? Or is it perhaps more symbolic for you? Sure. I think there's a lot of credibility to any sort of prior vision of of the future. So for me, I do like to look back at older forms of sci-fi and how people before us viewed what was looming, to put it that way. My interest isn't just limited to the 80s necessarily, but also sci-fi before then. But when it comes to Blade Runner specifically, I don't know if that's what you're asking me to... to I guess... Because there's nothing else in the 80s that I, I guess, uh, draw from necessarily. Mostly the, I guess, the sort of synthy, the sort of synthy oh, yeah. uh, sounds that, that are in the work, which obviously don't play throughout the whole work, but they do sort of... They're sort of like a reoccurring character. or yeah. And oh, I guess it doesn't just make me think of the 80s. It also made me think of, um, what's that TV show? The, um, Stranger Things. Oh, yeah. Like a sort of 80s Which is hev- heavily inspired by the, the 80s. Yeah. I think the reason why the 80s is 
inspirational to a lot of creators is because um, I think that's when the use of synths really mm. became more of a thing. And part of my interest in synths is, is that it's obviously a sound that doesn't exist in nature necessarily. Um, and the reason why I used a lot of that in the work is because I wanted to take the listeners out of a grounded, real instrument like the piano and into something that's much more artificial sounding. Mm. Although a fun fact is the artificial sounds were actually made from the piano playing itself. <laughs> so it was those notes, piano notes that were... I mean, that's making me, because we were speaking previously about IVF treatments, and that combination of, I guess, the more and the less organic sounds or kind of the artificial or the, or the synthesized. Were you thinking about that in relation to, for instance, IVF treatment, where it is this kind of sterilized process of something that is typically quite organic? Did you make that yes. relationship while you were... Yes. So, like you're saying, IVF is a... You know, artificial intervention into a very natural process and I really am interested in that interplay between the two. Mm -hmm. Would you say though that um, someone who's been conceived, uh, someone who was a test tube baby, would you say that their life is artificial in any I mean sorry that's a, that's a big question isn't it like and also like I don't I don't think that um, I don't want to insult anyone that might be a test tube baby that's listening but I guess it's sort of like to what point like when does it become when is it artificial and and when is it real it's not an artificial egg it's not an artificial sperm it's mm -hmm. or even is it I guess there can be a question is it controversial to tell that child mm. yeah. or to tell that person in the article that you sent us about the comparing the organ donors to egg donors it's wrapped up in like loads of ethical questions yeah. of and obviously like these kids being able to kids are will eventually become adults having access to all of that information like are they do they get access mm -hmm. um to the information about their parents or about their uh, their biological parents yeah. yeah we don't know the long-term consequences yeah or what might arise further down the line but i think the idea of ivf is somewhat well let's let's put it this way egg donorship is a step i think further removed from something organic than let's say maybe ivf is just because ivf doesn't necessarily imply that the parents are not the biological parents if that makes sense i guess i'm thinking maybe because it's a little close to home for me but i'm thinking about ivf in terms of an ability to give uh, queer partners the ability to have a child with their mm -hmm. with their DNA. I mean, for me in particular, I keep referencing TV shows, but um, Master of None, they had a new season uh, that came out during the summer. And there's one episode where one of the main characters, she she's a queer woman mm -hmm. and she wants to have a child really, really badly. And she goes through IVF treatment and she harvests her own eggs for it. And the whole process is... To be honest, as like a gay woman who is also kind of thinking about what happens if I ever want to have children, terrifying because yeah. it's extremely invasive. But it also makes me think about that 
biological aspect and then you kind of reach into these controversies of if there is this kind of sterile nature of IVF and then biology and then that child being more or less organic depending on how related its biology is to its parents Mm -hmm. it's such a slippery slope of then kind Mm -hmm. of I guess in my mind like the crux of the question is does it matter and if so why yeah maybe part of when I'm listening to your work and I'm kind of I have this background in my head I can't help but be kind of caught in like this dystopia or this like question of I don't know if this is really the world I want to I want to go forward in like I don't want to be consumed by my eggs and I don't want to hear kind of a baby's wail but I don't know if I'm painting quite like a fragmented image of of the piece here, though. I think the piece itself is probably pretty fragmented fragmented. on its its own. But I I love that it just brings up so many different threads of of thought. And so there, there is no, I guess, no one way to interpret the piece. And when it comes to all the questions that it throws up, I, I don't know. I honestly don't know, and well, I think, these are things I'm interested in. Yeah, myself. one interpretation of the piece that I had, I, I mean, you did sort of say, say at the beginning of the episode that you see it as a soundscape, but one of my questions was whether you see it as a narrative or more of a uh, sensory experience. And so I was thinking about how an embryo experiences the sound of a womb, and that's, a, a, I guess, a heartbeat and there's always that saying that we all sort of want to go back to the womb. And I wonder about what would be the sounds that a test tube embryo hears. And there was, I mean, not necessarily that I thought that your work is necessarily the sounds of a test tube embryo. That would be amazing. Yeah, but I guess there was sort of that man-made noise. Maybe going back to the question, do you see it as a sensory experience or, um, or a narrative? Yeah, I think I saw it as both starting with the scene being set by the dialogue and then following a a trajectory where, as we were just saying, things become a bit more fragmented and you need to sort of piece together what the work could be referencing. But I think as that goes along, that's where it it becomes much more sensory, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So in a way, you lose yourself within the the sounds mm-hmm. there's something that I noticed between so the work that I've made and the work that Neve made the work that you Nina made that was on the show mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. so the first and second episode and it just really really struck me how this commonality was a dropping down of the octave oh, of, yeah. of the voices yeah and I think that's really it brings up something really really interesting i think about perhaps how we perceive voices of authority Mm -hmm. definitely and that's that's something that i've done a lot in my work as well is to bring down the octave of of my voice if it is my voice that i'm using Mm. at the time i don't know what you guys think about i'd say that actually all three of us have i mean maybe not maybe not mh but i think Neve and I definitely do have quite deep voices already, so I found it quite weird that we still wanted to make make our voices deeper. I think we also both had quite different reasons for doing it. I mean, you are inhabiting the voice of a man. Yeah, yeah. 
and I guess in yeah it was for a fictional podcast yeah. and it was kind of a conversation between two two men kind of an ex-hockey player and I guess when when I was dropping down the the octave or the voice it was trying or it was attempting to do something more genderless so obviously mm-hmm. I have a feminine voice but if I drop down the octave it very quickly becomes is it is it a woman is it a man I'm not quite sure. Mm-hmm. And because I was trying to voice something non-human, it felt more important to blur that line a bit. Because even that kind of concept of gender, you know, like a, a plant has all its reproductive organs within it. Male and female doesn't really make sense anymore. At least from my perspective when I'm thinking about it. I mean, the sea can be called feminine, but mm-hmm. I don't think we have to consider it as that. It feels a little restrictive to me. But I don't know how successful that octave change was. I definitely saw the the blurring of lines as the blurring of what, what is organic and what is perhaps artificially made and I think mm-hmm. that's also where my interest lies but also when it comes to 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 dropping that octave down it's it is to I think get people or, or listeners or viewers of whatever the piece is to take the work more seriously it makes me think about because for want of a better reference, uh, how Margaret Thatcher had to go through voice training to mm-hmm. bring her, her her voice down um, for that exact reason, i.e. to be taken more seriously and more as a, an authority figure. Isn't it the same on like the, the tube? The, uh, the mind, the gap between the train and the platform is a, is a man. And the other announcements are a woman, so it's like when it's something really important. Oh, it's a man's mm. voice, and it's a woman's voice when it's like a light here for. That's a good point. <laughs> I actually never noticed that. I'm also wondering as well, even in general, kind of lower octaves of things taken more seriously, or like mm, I'm thinking yeah. about your work as like the kind of the synth sounds in it are. I wouldn't say high pitched, but I wouldn't say low pitched. Mm-hmm. Whether as the section where it appears like a woman is crying or wailing, it kind of distorts and it breaks and it goes deeper. (laughs) And I didn't quite cop this when I was listening to the work, but I'm, what I'm thinking now about it in relation to this conversation and how does that make the whale seem more serious because it seems less feminine and therefore more less traditionally heard? Mm-hmm. Was that something that you were thinking about or is this more that like break into distortion? It was the latter, I think. But now that you mention what you just did, that's that's interesting to me. It's not something that came to mind when I was first working on it. There's also something I was just, I've, I've just been sat here just kind of thinking about the difference between like a sort of high octave and a low octave and how, how both of, both of those pitches like have a way of like moving through you. So mm-hmm. something that's low has a sort of high vibration state like way of being. So it mm-hmm. moves, it can actually physically sort of make you move. Whereas something that's really high pitched is also described as piercing. It moves through you in a, in a completely different way it's like really poignant and so if it's if it's low pitched you sort of feel it in your your gut 
Mm. If that makes sense. And I guess that's that's part of the concept of bass as mm. well. The yeah. piece of music having a really heavy bass. Mm. That's something you, you physically feel. And, and something that's high pitched is, I guess, associated with pain. Very was, painful. The pain, yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, part of the soundscape contains a shift from zero to 200,000 hertz. And once it goes, I think, past the, the, the point of, of hearing... It's 2,000, wasn't it? 2,000 is a point yeah. where you can't hear anything anymore. Yeah. Um, but up until that point, you can you can feel it piercing. Mm. And it's it's not very pleasurable. But no, it, feel, it feels like your ears might <laughs> explode or something. It is real. Mm. They do that um, uh, near my parents' house back in Canada. There's a house that has an alarm, and I think I've heard them here too, where it's this high-pitched little like beep, and it's a way to keep teenage loiterers from like not loitering around the house because there's a certain point where you can't hear it anymore because our hearing is slowly getting worse and worse. So I have always have this thing where I always walk past this house uh, every time I go back and see whether like it's like a really good gauge of for me to tell whether I'm getting older or not and if I can still hear it I'm like yes I can still hear it <laughs> oh so so teenagers are much more likely to hear that sound and then not want to yeah and not want to hang around those spaces wow. this kind of combination of like of pitch and hearing and age is kind of making me think back to talking about kind of children and like growth and so on and even maybe using this piece as a way to test or to like think about age and fertility in a way so kind of how different ages of audience will hear the work and will kind of register the changes in that frequency Mm -hmm. um I guess I'm wondering as well like what what range of frequency can could the baby hear or could the um like could a baby when it's born here or could an embryo when it's in the womb here or your, or your dog you've got like the dog whistles don't you they're like so high pitched that you can't hear it yeah completely but I know like, there's something about kind of the um, how an ear will form and kind of what kind of sounds you can hear and kind of I guess how you interpret sounds is like a completely different thing but even just what your ear perceives kind of what kind of frequency your ear perceives um, sort of like when you're when you're born does your mother's voice sound higher to you Mm -hmm. and then progressively get deeper as you go older also Mm -hmm. as kind of I mean typically um, women's voices get deeper as they get older as well but I guess I'm thinking in that in relation to this conversation about pitch and how that authority kind of perhaps starts I don't know yes that's a good point so pitch is basically mutable based on purpose or the course of nature no way i guess then kind of continuing that conversation about about pitch and how it kind of assumes authority or doesn't thinking about the the sound clip from in the piece where it's the kind of audio of an ultrasound what what pitch does an ultrasound go at and can can the embryo hear it i guess mm. maybe is an interesting question so from my understanding, you need about 20 megahertz to be able to get a scan going. And I think the, the, the what you hear towards the 
end of the audio piece is the embryo as it goes along through its different stages. And that in itself sort of seems to be deepening as it goes along mm-hmm. in, in, in pitch and tone. When you say mm. stages, you mean stages of... Development. I, I guess I'm thinking about the, the relation of what we're talking to now um, to your bio about technoprotopias and this sort of mundane near future, technological future. Do you see, is that where a lot of your research is kind of coming from? Is that what you're expanding on in the future or? Okay, I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm more interested in how these concepts fall more generally along the, the periphery of female experience. Kind of talk, talking about like technoprotopias, specifically in relation to female fertility and IVF treatment. I guess I'm curious about that relationship between something kind of organic and feminine to technology, especially when it seems to largely mean that it's appropriated. There's that likelihood of appropriation, but then along with that, there's the what seems to me quite an exciting possibility to extend yourself as a human with these technologies. So that goes back to what can be perceived as polar opposite expectations of these advancements in in technology, in biomedicine. Mm -hmm. You're talking about the ability to kind of to freeze eggs and then... Any advancement, any advancement in reproductive technology, I think. This is a way to kind of provide ability for more for more people to conceive if they want to or yes and at at, a, at their own time frame mm-hmm. as well okay and no longer being tied to what you might call it, their own body clock per se well i think we're going to have to finish up there thank you so much mh for joining us thank you for having me it was a really good conversation thanks for expanding more on the on the piece and the research Thank you so much. And we'll see you in four, not you, uh, MH, but we'll see you, listeners, in four weeks' time. (laughs) Until next time. Yeah. Bye.